Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Ed Crane. I'm president of the Cato Institute, and I welcome you all to our forum today, which uh, should be interesting. In the uh, 35 years of the Cato Institute's existence, I can't recall uh, a more important grassroots uh, movement than the Tea Party movement. It is important on so many uh, different levels. Um, their goal is uh, fiscal responsibility, constitutionalism, limited government. And it's a very narrow goal in that sense, that we just want to restore America to the uh, vision of the founders, um, which is radically different than the situation we find ourselves in today. You know, uh, I always say it's a, a, a bad sign that um, people will stay up until 2 a.m. to see who won the election uh, because really it shouldn't matter. If we took the Constitution seriously, it really shouldn't matter who gets elected because they don't and they shouldn't have the power to control our lives the way they do today. The Tea Party people understand that. It's interesting that the, uh, uh, the mainstream media uh, wants to suggest that the Tea Party movement is unsophisticated when in fact they're quite sophisticated. It is the, the people on the left who think that the welfare state is somehow going to improve the condition of the poor in America, or that it takes a village, as Hillary put it, to make uh, society work, or people on the right who, uh, like uh, the neocons, want uh, an American empire, or like uh, Rick Santorum thinks that the federal government should dictate... Uh, social behavior, uh, those are the naive people. Uh, the Tea Party people have a very clear understanding, I think, of how government works, how politics works, um, and uh, they're not fooled by all the, the nonsense that goes on in this city uh, and are standing back. And one of the great things about them is that they are nonpartisan, uh, which you have to be if you want to make sense of what's going on in the world. So I'm just thrilled that there is such a movement, tens of millions of people involved, and we're delighted to have today two people who are critical uh, as leaders of this movement. Now, they will both say, oh, no, we're not leaders, but they are. And they've written a wonderful book, Tea Party uh, Patriots, which I hope uh, everyone will buy. I'm going to make sure my three grown children read it, even though there are a couple of ideological glitches, but not, nothing serious. <laughs> And it is uh, written by our speakers. Uh, Mark uh, Meckler uh, is co-founder of the Tea Party uh, Patriots, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, Tea Party organization in the country. 1,800 chapters should suggest that it is. Uh, its mission, it says, is to attract, educate, organize, and mobilize our fellow citizens to secure public policy consistent with our three core values of fiscal responsibility, constitutionally limited government, and free markets. Uh, Mark is um, uh, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and um, formerly a Republican. He's now an independent, which I think is critical, uh, as I say, to this movement. Uh, his partner in crime with this book is uh, Jenny Beth Martin. Uh, she is also so a co-founder co of the Tea Party uh, Patriots. 
Um, she was one of uh, the 20 people uh, to take part in the original conference call that launched uh, this nonprofit. And, um, uh, you know, that was, I think, Rick Santelli's uh, tirade on, on TV was the thing that really sparked it. But these people um, took that spark and turned it into a, a fire. Um, uh, Jenny Beth uh, formerly was a computer programmer at Home uh, Depot, and she helped organize the remarkable uh, September 12th uh, march on Washington, um, where there were tens of thousands of people. Uh, and she currently serves as co-chair in her hometown uh, Tea Party in Atlanta. So we have two uh, important players in a very, very important um, uh, movement. I'm going to turn the podium over to there to them, and then I will introduce John Fund um, after they're done talking. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Cato, for hosting us today. I cannot believe that this movement is not even three years old yet. We'll be three years old at the end of this month. And in three years' time, we have over 3,000 chapters. We have a book. There are quite a few books that have been written about the Tea Party movement. We have marched on D.C., we've organized, we've affected elections, and we're continuing to hold our government accountable. And one thing that we've learned is despite winning so many seats in the House of Representatives in 2010, we knew that it didn't stop on Election Day. And we've learned that it really truly doesn't stop then. The, the politicians will do everything they can to hold on to the power, and it's up to us as people, the people who elect them, to hold them accountable. And that's what we've worked so hard to do. In December and January of 2009 and 2010, before even a full year old, we started asking for feedback from coordinators around the country on where they wanted to see this Tea Party movement go. We'd had protests on tax day. We'd had the 9-12 march on D.C. We had started coming out about health care and had, were at the event that Michelle Bachman called everyone to the lawn of the Capitol for. Many of you were here that day. And we were saying, okay, where do we go now? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to focus on? Through the feedback from all of that, and we had over 8,000 people reply. We, we came up with a goal for Tea Party Patriots, and it was a long-term goal. It wasn't a short-term goal. The, we have our core values of fiscal responsibility, constitutionally limited government, and free markets. To truly affect change, we realized that we were going to have to instill those values in the hearts and minds of Americans. And it couldn't just be 20, 30 percent of Americans, and it couldn't even just be 50 percent of Americans. It had to be over 60 percent, because that way, when people go to vote, they'll vote based on our core values. They'll take those with them, and they'll, they'll know them instinctively. They'll know that this is what's important. This is what makes America great. It's our Constitution. It's free markets, capitalism, being responsible with the money that the people give to Washington, D.C., or allow to be taken from them to be sent to Washington, D.C. And if you do, if we can do that and instill it over 
in the hearts and minds of over 60% of Americans, then it allows for, you know, when there's a bad, a bad person who maybe does agree with your core values, but they've got some other issues, you, you might wind up voting for the better person just because they're a better person or your neighbor's running for office. So it, it allows for a little bit of, of fluctuation in the elections, yet it still ensures that we're voting for our core values and for our Constitution. And that's how we came up with the, this goal, which was the basis of our book. And we did it because of people just like you guys who are sitting here today who've been to so many of our events and are, are organizing and spreading this message around the country. We did it because of your feedback, and we did it to spread that message further around the country. And there are five different paths that, that we think can be used to achieve this goal, economic, education, political, judicial, and culture. And each one is laid out in the book. And then at the end of the book, we talk about how these are our ideas and what we think is a way, a way to achieve these goals. But what do the people in this movement think? Because we came up with a goal from people around the country who helped us come up with it. And we realized that the plan, while we've worked through it and we've fleshed it out and put it in, down on paper, it, it may not be the right one. And together as Americans, we can come out, up with the right ones. So we encourage people to read the book. Let us know what you think. Go to teapartypatriots.org and, and let us know if we're on the right track or if we're not on the right track. And where we're not, we can work together to figure out how we can continue to move forward. And where we are, we can work together to make those things happen. And that's what the book is about. And I think it's just a celebration of this entire movement. And I'm very honored to be here today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thanks for welcoming us here today. Thanks, Ed, and, and thanks to Cato. And, and not just for having us here today, but for the long history of leadership. Leadership in, in what I would describe simply as the field of liberty. And Jenny Beth told you specifically some things that are in the book and, and the five pathways to liberty. But really for, for us as a movement, for people who participate in the Tea Party movement, the entire movement boils down to a single word. The word is liberty. Liberty is the idea upon which this country is based, and it's unique in human history. It's an aberration, really. It's our obligation to fight for that, because if you look at the entire scope of human history, generally speaking, the pendulum swings between tyranny and really horrible tyranny. <laughs> and what we see here and what we've experienced in our relatively short history in the world as this great nation is unique. It's worth fighting for. It's a flame. And that flame can go out at any moment. It's our job to fight for it. Uh, in the Tea Party movement, a lot of people have gotten engaged with their history in a way that we haven't seen in a long time, in a way that I certainly wasn't taught our history in the public schools. People are reading the words of the Founding Fathers. People are reading the Constitution itself, and the Declaration of Independence. And these are words that were written by great men, and men who have, at this point in our history, become almost mythological. And sometimes I think that's a problem for the movement and for the country. Because I think sometimes we take them out of context. The greatness of this country at its formation was the fact that these people could be elevated out of their communities. That these communities were strong enough, that they were wise enough to elevate this type of person into government. Think about government today. 
think about our elected representatives today and compare them to what we understand the founding fathers were and the people who fought in those times, and we see a significant difference. So I think we have to remember that this kind of greatness comes from the communities of America. It's not born in Washington, D.C. It's not born in the state capitals like Sacramento, California. It's born in our communities at home. And when we talk about liberty, I know a lot of times we think about the Founding Fathers, we think about their eloquence and their wisdom and their learning, but really if you read the real history of the American Revolution, that's not where it started. It started with the regular people. There's an incredible story of a young man named Mellon Chamberlain who was traveling around the country around 1843, and he was trying to collect stories, the oral history of the remaining survivors of the American Revolution. He was afraid those histories would be lost. And he happened to cross Levi Preston in North Carolina. And Preston was a young man in 1775 and turned out on the battlefield at Concord for the fight against the Redcoats. And Chamberlain wanted to know from Preston, why did you go? Why did you go to the field of battle that day to fight the superior British Army, the, the most fearsome fighting force ever assembled in history? What would make you go? Was it the Stamp Act? Is that why you went out to fight? Were you outraged having to place the stamps and, and pay the taxes to place those stamps on your official documents? And, and Preston essentially said, I never saw any stamps. I didn't know anything about stamps. We never bought a stamp. He said, well, if it wasn't the stamps, was it the tea? Was it what happened at Boston Harbor? Were you outraged by the imposition of taxes uh, by the British, by the Crown? Is that what drove you to fight on that field of battle that day? And Preston said... We didn't know anything about that. We didn't drink tea out in the country. And so Chamberlain was puzzled. What would inspire you to come out and fight? Why were you so outraged? And he said, son, when we appeared on the field of battle that day and we saw them redcoats, we knew one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always intended to. And those redcoats intended that we wouldn't. It's powerful. What they were fighting for, what the average citizen was fighting for is liberty itself. I realize it's a lofty idea, but it's a simple idea as well. And sometimes we make it too complex. I think Cato is heavily engaged and always has been in the fight for that fundamental liberty. And that's what the Tea Party is really all about. We've always governed ourselves as a people, but if we look at what's going on in this city or in our state capitals, we realize that we vote that we expect certain performance from our elected officials, and then they don't do what we expect of them. That's not limited to the right or the left. It's across the spectrum. The most recent polling shows us that roughly 80% of the American public feels that the federal government no longer has the consent of the governed. The pollster Pat Cannell has described that as a pre-revolutionary moment. I think that's accurate. I think it's dangerous. And I think it's a fundamental problem that crosses political boundaries. And I think what you see in the Tea Party movement, what you see reflected in this book, and the reason that Jenny Beth and I are fighting is because liberty is at stake in this country. We're at the precipice. Both parties are more than willing to take away our liberty. And the book is a call for everybody, every citizen, every individual to stand up in the fight for self-governance. That's why we're here. We appreciate you guys are here today. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, Mark and, and Jen Beth. 
It's now my pleasure to introduce the commenter uh, for the program, John Fund, a longtime friend of the Cato Institute and, and me. Uh, he's a senior editor uh, for the American Spectator, a contributor to uh, Fox News, and is currently writing a book on the American electoral process. Few people understand that process better than John Fund, who's uh, been active uh, analyzing it for decades. He's former editorial board member and columnist with the Wall Street Journal, author of several books, including uh, Stealing Elections, How Voter Fraud uh, Threatens Our Democracy, and Cleaning House America's uh, Campaign for Term Limits, which is an issue dear to my heart and maybe making a comeback, actually. He's also a political analyst for uh, Fox News. Um, uh, John began his career in journalism uh, as a reporter for the uh, wonderful syndicated columnist uh, Roland Evans and uh, Bob Novak. Uh, but his greatest claim to fame is that he may well be the first uh, Cato intern. Uh, way back when, he looks too young to have that title, but uh, uh, it's either Tom Palmer, who's a senior fellow with Cato, and but he has a Ph.D. now, so he probably doesn't want to brag about being an intern. For John, it's still a big deal. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, he, he is a, a, a great um, libertarian friend and, and friend of liberty, uh, John Fund. Well, even if I wasn't Cato intern number one, I sure would want to be. I, um, I was talking with a congressman late last year, an old grizzled veteran uh, who'd been on Capitol Hill for decades. And last, starting in 2010, this fellow showed up at Tea Party after Tea Party, basically trying to embrace the movement. And I knew his record well enough, and I knew that you know, you could walk through his deepest adherence to the Tea Party and not get your ankles wet. So I asked him, you know, what is this all about? And he gave me one of the finest answers you can in a democracy. He said, do you remember that old story about the politician who's up in his office building and he's looking down at the street and he sees a parade going by and they're having signs and they're shouting slogans and they're demanding something? And he says, this job of a smart politician is to figure out what they're saying, get down there on the street, get in front of the line, and start pretending to lead them. <laughs> and that's what the Tea Party has been about a large part. It's not just what average Americans have been doing, it's what they've convinced people who have lost sight of liberty, lost sight of adherence to the Constitution, that they temporarily have to go back to the uh, oath that they took in, when, they, when they were sworn into office. I'm going to make three very brief points. This, by the way, is an inspiring book, and more than just inspiring, it's actually practical. Uh, you can actually learn something about organizing a movement and keeping it whole and make it, keeping it relevant, which is one of the great challenges of any institution. Um, hearkening back to the politician who must lead the people, even if he didn't initiate the idea, um, I grew up in California, as Ed did. Uh, I remember Ronald Reagan as governor. I got to meet Ronald Reagan several times. He inspired me personally but I was never a slavish admirer. I actually can remember writing some critical articles about Reagan's tenure as governor. But Ronald Reagan was a genius in many respects, and one of them was anticipating where politics was going. 
in the spring of 1977, after Reagan had lost the Republican nomination to Gerald Ford and after the Republicans had been crushed in that ensuing November election, Reagan had a reunion with his former staffers, and he said, I know you're all despondent, but you should be of good cheer. Um, liberals win, even use the word statists, win when two things happen. We have abandoned our principles. We have forgotten why people elected us to, do, to, to come to Washington to do th certain things. And the left runs people who campaign as moderates, campaign as safe. He said, we just had Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter capitalized on the uh, scandals of Richard Nixon, everything from Watergate to Legion price controls. And R Jimmy Carter ran as a moderate. So we lost. He said, you should be of good cheer for the following reason. He can't govern as a moderate, even if he wanted to. The people who pay the bills of the Democratic Party, the unions, and the Democratic leadership in Congress won't let him. So he will govern from the left. If he governs from the left, he will fail, because people who govern from the left, their policies always fail. If he fails, people will notice. If they notice, people will get upset. They'll form protest movements. They'll start going into the streets. At that point, you have a chance to redeem yourself and go out and have a conversation with the American people and say, we've learned from our mistakes. We can, once again, provide you with some answers. We can have a conversation about why you should vote for us again. And sure enough, Jimmy Carter was proved, proven to, his, to Reagan's prediction. Within three years, we had 21% interest rates. We had 12% inflation. We had 9% unemployment. We had gas lines. We had the Soviet Union on the march around the world. And we had hostages in Iran and a whole plague of problems. Ronald Reagan was able to go around the country with a, one of the greatest lines in American politics. He said, a recession is when your neighbor loses your, his job or her job. A depression is when you lose your job. And recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his job. <laughs> Ronald Reagan also leaped on the tax revolt, which was one of the originating orig origination points for the Tea Party. People forget this. Ronald Reagan opposed two of Howard Jarvis's property tax initiatives before Prop 13. He opposed them. We had to balance the budget. We couldn't afford the revenue loss. It was when he saw the tax revolt rise up after Jimmy Carter was elected that he became the leader and the advocate for the tax revolt. Ronald Reagan anticipated where the country was going and decided it was time to lead it. Well. Even in Reagan's declining years, before Alzheimer's sapped his vitality, he made one other prediction. After Bill Clinton won in 1992, he had one final reunion with his staff in Los Angeles. Larry Kudlow was there. He tells me this story. Reagan said, I will remind you of what I said 16 years earlier. Uh, we lost because the people we elected to office abandoned their principles. Read my lips, no new taxes. President Bush had abandoned his tax pledge. And they just ran somebody who was able to campaign successfully as a moderate, Bill Clinton. And welfare as we know it, was his slogan. But Clinton, he said, will not govern from the center because the unions and the Democratic leadership in Congress won't let him. And sure enough, Clinton, with his health care plan, uh, the largest tax increase in American history, the BTU tax, which is a precursor to cap and trade, Clinton lurched to the left. And sure enough, the country noticed, and there were protests in the streets, another previous rendition of the Tea Party. Well, it seems that every 16 years the American people forget what happens when you elect a liberal president and a liberal Congress at the same time, and they do that. They elect that. And we have just had that with Obama in 2008. 
capitalizing on the mistakes and failures of the Republican Congress and previous administration, and, of course, running someone who said he would unite us and govern from the sensible center, Barack Obama. How's that been working out for us? Well, that's why we come to the Tea Party. The Tea Party awakened Americans, millions of Americans, who believed in a fundamental freedom, which is the freedom to be left alone. The vast majority of people want to forget about politics most of the time and get on with the serious business of living. That means their family, that means their career, that means their faith, that means their hobbies, it means all kinds of things, and they don't see a difference between the two major parties. Therefore, they don't usually get involved. It's that that allows the left to achieve the kind of electoral successes that Barack Obama did. What Barack Obama's immediate lurch to the left with the stimulus package and with health care reform, it awakened, awakened a bunch of Americans that they could no longer forget about politics and leave it to the politicians. They had to take personal charge of their country's responsibilities. They had to actually get involved. That's the single biggest lesson of the Tea Party. People actually deciding, we're not going to shift our responsibility to someone else, we're going to take responsibility. And millions of Americans did that. So much so that in the exit polls of 2010, after the midterm elections, 40% of the people who voted, not 40% of all voters, remember elections are decided by those who vote, 40% of the people who voted said, I ally myself with the principles of the Tea Party. That was more than the 36% who identified with the Democratic Party, and it was more than the 36% who identified themselves with the Republican Party. Now, we're now in a non-political season. The presidential election hasn't heated up for most Americans yet. They don't have to make the final choice. So the Tea Party is a little more quiet than it was in 2010. But when it comes to voting, I predict the Tea Party will once again prove its relevance and will be a force strong and united and it is going to stand up for the same principles that I think were so successful in the 2010 election. My last point is about Tea Party envy. The left was taken aback by the Tea Party. They don't understand spontaneous movements. That's not what they're about. Uh, their movements are basically union-created astroturf in most cases. You know what happens when you encounter an opposition that you don't understand. First you try to ignore them, then you try to ridicule them, then you try to attack them, in this case as racists and uh, lunkheads and uh, unwashed masses. But then you try to imitate them. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I view Occupy Wall Street as the sincerest form of flattery. It is Tea Party envy. Now, I don't think it's worked. Uh, it, has, did increase a temp it did have a temporary increase in the... Uh, coverage of the issues of income equality and 99% versus 1%, but I don't think it's had a lasting political impact because it wasn't spontaneous. We know from records and from interviews uh, that we've encountered uh, both at the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, the Tea Party in New York, Occupy Wall Street, was a run out of the old Acorn offices, still using the old Acorn letterhead, still using the same Acorn leadership. The Tea Party was organic and it was spontaneous. Occupy Wall Street is orchestrated and hidden. We know what this is all about. This is about the 2012 election. You will have the Tea Party, which I think has remained independent and largely true to its roots, and you have Occupy Wall Street, which is basically an adjunct of the Obama campaign. How do I know this? Well, let's look at Barack Obama's history. His first job in politics was with an Acorn affiliate named Project Vote. He did such a good job there. He became their top trainer in Chicago. He did such a good job with that. He became Acorn's lawyer. Barack Obama is Acorn. 
ACORN is the AstroTurf left. The AstroTurf left hates the Tea Party. That's why the final showdown in November 2012 is going to be so interesting to watch. Thanks. Thank you.